Good morning. Here we are back in Philippians. We're in chapter four. We're going to wrap the book up today. There's a couple of different areas we're going to talk about that sort of conclude. But I want to just talk first about um, being thankful and missionaries that are thankful for their support. You know, every month, pretty much every month, there's a couple that we support in missions for decades, and they always send a thank you email to Acton Faith Bible Church every month. I mean, they send out their regular newsletter, but they also, every month, send out this little thank you email thing, and uh, might include a little note on what their current project is or something like that, but it's, uh, it's just good to see it. It's a kind of heartwarming to see those. They're graphic designers for missions and ministries and theological schools overseas. But I think that's pretty cool. They don't have to do that, but they just choose to do it. The Apostle Paul considered thank yous uh, to his supporters important as well. He didn't have email, but he did have an opportunity to write to a supporting church when Epaphroditus um, brought a generous gift of support to Paul in Rome. So the last part of Philippians chapter 4 is really Paul's thank you to the Philippian church, Philippi Bible Church. They'd been longtime supporters of Paul, but it had been a while since they were able to do anything for him, probably because of his circumstances. He'd been held in custody for a couple years in Jerusalem, and then the long trip home as a prisoner, uh, not home, but I mean to Rome, as a prisoner, and, and now he's in place, the same place, chained but settled, where they can connect, and the gift was sent to help him with his expenses there. So rather than being a dungeon, if you had money and you weren't like a major uh, trader or something, the Romans would let you rent your own quarters to live in, under guard always, but uh, you had to pay for it and uh, pay for your own keep and that kind of thing. So it saved the state money and it was also just a, a, a more merciful way to do things. So the Philippian gift is very timely because that would have helped Paul with those kinds of expenses. It made things better for him uh, mentally and physically, not being in a dungeon, but also in ministry because uh, in his own quarters he was able to receive visitors. And we have an account of that actually happening in Acts chapter 28 people coming to see him, they don't let you have visitors in the dungeon. You can't have like groups of people come in for Bible study. They don't do that. But if you had your own place, you could do that. So this gift comes and that enables him to live in rented quarters there. So the last two verses of the book of Acts actually describes this. It says he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That's the way the book ends. Unhindered. He would have been very hindered in the dungeon. So the Philippian gift helped him maintain these rather long-term situation there in Rome in rented quarters. So that gift would have been brought by, um, we know it was Epaphroditus, by some brother from Philippi. So he's going to go back so Paul can write a thank you letter that's going to go back with him. And, you know, not only did his being in rented quarters benefit those that came to see him, but we got four letters out of it. There's no guarantee that in a a dungeon you can write prison letters and send them out. So uh, he was able to do that as well. So we have four epistles of Paul that came from his hand during this particular time. So thank you is the main purpose of Philippians 4 from verse 10 all the way to the end. But this passage 
has so much more in it, embedded in it. It has a lot to say about our use of resources, about missions itself, and especially Paul's secret. This passage also has one of the most misused texts in the whole Bible. Well, maybe the second most misused text. The first most misused text would probably be Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. That's the most misused. That one's usually misused by unbelievers. But Philippians 4 has one that's probably the most misused by believers. So we'll be talking about that. So the themes are missions, giving to God's work, and the secret. I suppose we should start with the secret. It shows up first anyway because everybody wants to know secrets, right? So let's get into that. So the secret is related to Paul's theme in chapter 4, which is experiencing the peace of God. So let's pick it up in verse 10. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So notice first, as we've seen so often in Philippians, Paul is rejoicing, right? Rejoices in the Lord. Greatly, he says. That word we would know from the Greek language, megalos. He's a mega rejoicing here. He received their gift, and pay attention now, he rejoices in the Lord. That's really important. Paul keeps God front and center in his mind, as he should, and when this church sends him a substantial amount of support, he rejoiced in the Lord. And this was his delight, how God worked in situations provided for him. It wasn't so much the money. I mean, money's great, does things, but God's provision of it for him, coming at a time in a timely way, is something to really be thankful for. That's a much greater thing, is seeing how God works in these kinds of situations. So he's very careful to explain why this is, why this um, is, the way he thinks so that they won't uh, think his mega joy was having bags of money, you know, uh, mega coins that he received. So it's not that. He really is rejoicing in the Lord who knows and provides according to his will and timing. I mean, God is the one who orchestrated this timely gift, this very helpful gift. He provided for the Philippians to have the resources. God provided a faithful and available carrier in Epaphroditus, who was willing to spend weeks and weeks going to Rome and back. God protected Epaphroditus on the long journey to Rome, and it was very dangerous to travel in those days, and we know he got very sick at one point. And this gift came at a time when it really helped Paul to be able to continue ministering um, actively. Even though he couldn't leave his rented quarters, he could minister to many, many people that came to him. So yes, he thanks the Philippians, but he rejoices in the Lord. Greatly, he says. So he wants them to know he's not complaining about doing without. It's been a while since they connected or he'd heard from them. Uh, he has gone without during that time, but that's okay. And he wants them to know that that's okay. He's learned a secret. Did you catch what the secret is? Verse 11 again. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having an abundance and suffering need. So what he's saying is circumstances don't affect his faith or his walk with the Lord or his commitment to ministry. He just takes what comes. Whatever comes is what God has ordained, and he's learned that over time. You have to learn those things. Most people don't just jump in there and, oh, whatever happens to me is just fine. If you read the New Testament, you know Paul's ministry had many ups and downs, including some very severe um, abuse, persecution, violence against him, imprisonments. So at, at times he was so poor, he was literally hungry, I mean starving. And other times he just had to sleep out in the open. Once he was shipwrecked and was on the sea for a day and a night, he says. So, uh, you know, we might feel abandoned by God in moments like that. And Paul may have felt that way too in the beginning. I mean, Lord, if you won't support me, I guess you don't want me serving you, right? I mean, that's easy to have thoughts like that come into your head. Well, if he's not going to provide... He doesn't want me on the field or he doesn't want me serving him. But Paul learned by hard experience that God never wanted him to stop serving. He wanted him in the fight. He just wanted Paul to learn to rely on him. So he let these things happen so that Paul would develop that great ability to rely on God no matter what was going on in his life or going on around him. So that came by going without things for periods of time. He learned how to get along. So doing without is not fun, but almost anybody can tell you it's character building. It's, it's actually a positive thing in many ways. It clarifies things. It makes what's really important stand out. And how we approach it is what really matters. And a Christian approaches circumstances, negative circumstances, with faith in God's sovereign power and God's goodness. So he doesn't make mistakes, does he? God doesn't forget who we are or what we're going through. He doesn't look away. He knows us and he knows our circumstances intimately. He knows everything about our lives. So all we need to bring to the situation is faith, trusting in his sovereign goodness. Faith in God that he, in the God that's in the Bible, the God that's revealed himself in scripture, that God who is sovereign over all things, who's the creator of all things, who has no limits, who knows what you're thinking, who knows everything around you, before you and after you, who knows the future. That's the God you're putting your trust in. So God always provided for Paul, and uh, we mentioned Acts 28 just a bit ago. The book of Acts concludes with Paul in Rome in custody, but free to teach visitors and obviously free to write and communicate. But do you remember what happened just before Paul ended up in Rome in Acts chapter 27? Yeah, shipwreck. I mean, a bad one. When being transported to Rome by ship, his captain made some bad choices and they were storm-tossed on the sea for many days and they weren't even eating. They had food in the hold, but they were too uh, to, to take anything. So they're hungry and they're in danger for their lives. And they barely made it to Malta and the ship was wrecked on the shoals outside of Malta. But they all made it there and um, they were received by the Maltese people, but they had to wait three months there for another ship. But God took care of them. Indeed, God revealed to Paul during the worst time on the ship that they would survive, but they would have to go through it. 
So he didn't stop the storm for them, but he did let Paul know that he had a plan and that they were going to make it. So the question for us would be, can we approach hard circumstances and live through them with faith, knowing that God's in charge of all things? Can we trust him in those circumstances? So ultimately, Paul got to share the gospel on Malta, and there was a great response to it. You can read that in Acts 27. There was a, a reason for the trouble he couldn't have seen while he was in the trouble. Disaster, accident, shipwreck, and church planted. It was worth it. It was worth all that to get a church planted. So God had a plan all the way through. So Paul was uh, frequently in bad conditions during his ministry, in great danger, often without food. At other times, especially when he settled someplace to plant a church for a long period of time in a strategic city, some places he was there for 18 months, like Corinth or Ephesus for several years, uh, he would be doing all right. He'd have a place to sleep, plenty of food, and all that kind of stuff. He even says here he had an abundance at times. He had plenty. And having a lot, especially over the long haul when you have a lot for a long time, uh, that can have spiritual dangers tied to it as well. We get so comfortable we forget to depend on God and that's a, there's a dark side to that too. So we see that very often today with uh, very wealthy megachurch preachers who seem to forget who God is and kind of uh, stumble into all kinds of sins. So he, he learned, Paul learned, to simply trust God. For most of us it takes learning experiences to really start doing that and it took him learning experiences. He says, I have learned to be content in every circumstance. Contentment doesn't come easy for most people. And contentment doesn't mean you lack feeling. Uh, it's, it, it's not a deadening thing to be content. You can't read Paul's letters and think he's like this religious guru guy contemplating life, detached from everything, just looking at his navel and oh, nothing really matters that goes on around me because I'm the center of the universe and I'm one with everything. He doesn't, he doesn't live like that at all. Paul was a man of passion and great feeling and, but, he, but he knows that there's a good and sovereign God that called him and he is serving him. So he trusts God. That's the key. He's learned to trust him, he says. So he's okay with prosperity. And he's okay with deprivation. He's not defined by his circumstances. His attitude is not defined by his circumstances. He's the same man in both situations. That's the goal we should be striving for as believers. You know, some men feel a, a very strong need to be successful and they really feel useless and can get actually depressed if they don't make much headway in their business. And sometimes it's even worse if they are successful for an extended period and then lose everything. They, they so identify with what they build that it just destroys them if they lose that. They kind of lose themselves, you know. That should not happen to a Christian. Because while success is great, uh, it's fine, it's from God, it is dependent on God's will. So many things can go wrong in life, go wrong in the world. You could lose your health, uh, there could be a severely depressed economy, uh, a major war could happen, or you could be in a country where a revolution happens, and everything gets shut down or destroyed, and all of that. People are just out there burning businesses today all over the place. We know, we know that business success, while a blessing and an opportunity, it's a good thing, that's not what we're here for. 
We're here to serve him. And, and serving him might include having that kind of success, maybe for your whole life, but it also might include losing it. So whatever happens circumstantially that we're not responsible for, we look to God and we say, okay, that's your will for today. I'm going to serve you. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to trust you because God has purposes of his own. He just might need us to do something different for him than we'd planned. And we should go with that. Okay, so here's the secret. It's in verse 13. And this is one of the most misused verses in the New Testament. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. <laughs> now, does that mean Paul could do all things, like, like period, all things? It doesn't. It doesn't mean he could invent a flying machine just because he wanted to. He's not Leonardo da Vinci. In fact, he didn't even make one, right? He's not the Wright brothers. Timothy, I, I have an idea. And it's not, it's not like that. He's just, he wants to do it and he's going to do it because God strengthens him to do it. That's not what it's talking about here. It means accepting God's will for today and living for him today. Clearly, finding contentment in all circumstances requires a strong and abiding faith in who God is and his care for us. So Paul's purpose in life was to magnify Christ. And, and while some folks might tell us that this happens by displaying our great wealth uh, that Jesus gives us, that's the prosperity gospel idea, it's just as likely that Christ is magnified by how we live when we're poor or sick or in dire circumstances, maybe under persecution. A religion that says different than that isn't about God, it's about us. And life is not about us. God is the center of all things. So most Christians throughout history and most Christians in the world today did not have the luxuries that a free capitalist society gives us. Most world Christians today are poor, most very poor. And, you know, we're a bit spoiled. The New Testament points to how we endure loss and great trials as a very common way to magnify Christ. We can glorify him by this faithful attitude, this contented attitude we approach when things are taken away or we don't have much. So the all things in verse 13 plainly refers to all things that God calls us to do. Not all things we might have a desire to do. Verse 13 doesn't mean that Paul could compete in a decathlon at the Olympic Games and when, at 50 years old, he could just, he'd just say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, I can beat these pagans. I can get out there. I can do it. Hand me the discus, Hercules, and stand back. No, it's not going to be like that. That's not what he means. He's talking about faithfully serving Christ in all of the sorrows and struggles and vicissitudes of life. Life is hard. It's very often hard. And we can serve Christ faithfully in all of those things. That's what he's talking about. Context, context. So in Christ, and by the power of Christ, Paul can do what Christ called him to do. Take the gospel to the Gentiles in spite of massive and sometimes very violent opposition. He could still do it. One wise teacher said, God makes us responsible to do while he becomes responsible to supply us with the strength to do. Instead of saying Christ does everything and I do nothing, it says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Too often we uh, 
plead our weaknesses and our inabilities, don't we? Even Moses tried that with God. I I can't do that. I, I can't talk. I'm not a good speaker. Well, are you sure you can't do that? Whatever he's called you to do, are you sure? Are you sure you can't do it? If God is your strength, if God strengthens you for that final task, are you sure you can't do it? Anything God wants us to do, we can do in the strength that he provides. In fact, the Christian who is the weakest in himself can probably be the strongest in Christ because he's not letting himself get in the way of things. Paul certainly felt that way. I don't know if you remember his words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, but he said, he said, therefore I am well content, there's that word again, well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can do much more than we think with him and with him in us and giving us the strength, in his strength. So what Paul accomplished in his life is incredible. What Paul suffered in his life is incredible. He accomplished so much despite the suffering because he found his strength in Christ and not in himself. In himself, he probably would have given up. In fact, he was close to it a couple times, but God always sustained him. So Christ is always what we need and he will supply it as we walk with him. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's that ongoing intimate relationship. We need to draw our life, our source, our strength from the vine. He's the vine and we're the branches. Paul knew that. What do you need to serve him? You need to abide with him. You need to know him intimately and maintain a relationship with him. You need to be close to him. When things get really hard in life, in ministry, it casts you back on God. You know, you don't want to get where you're self-confident, where you think you've got the stuff and all of that. You need God's strength to do it the way he wants you to do it. Layman Strauss said, uh, Whatever we need, we must turn to Christ for its supply and he will be in us the power to do and be. To the weak, he is strength. To the ignorant, he is wisdom. To those lacking courage, he is their courage. To the proud, he is their humility. Paul could be wanting for food and shelter without bitterness or complaint, but only through Christ. On the other hand, he could be abounding in an oversupply of this world's goods and not be conceited or proud, but only through Christ. The ability of Christ knows no inability. So why not trust him? He said that so well I had to read it. You know, why not? Why not trust him? Learn contentment. Learn the secret. The strength of Christ can sustain us through anything, can help us do anything God wants us to do. Okay, let's shift gears a bit because he's wrapping up the book and he's kind of changing subjects along. The next paragraph really shifts the focus to the, this, what he's thankful for and it touches on this whole question of missionary support. Funding gospel work should be a priority focus for every Christian. It's that simple. Your heart should, should burn with the desire to see more and more people find salvation in Christ. You don't want to be content with your salvation. You want the world to know, right? 
So we get a really great picture here of the early church missionary effort supported by existing churches, especially Philippi Bible Church, which was the first church in Europe right there um, in the final verses. He talks about this here. And of course, you know, I, we, my wife and I visited Philippi. We were there on a tour not too long ago. And um, it's just a ruin today. It's an archaeological site. It's really fascinating, but we were privileged to see it. But a little way from there is a very beautiful Eastern Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox Church, built along the river where Lydia first heard the gospel. And she was the first convert in Europe to Christianity. And um, there's a church there dedicated to her. But it, the Bible says God opened her heart to believe. But he, he could not have done that had the missionaries not been there. They, that the gospel goes forth and God uses their faithfulness to bring people to himself. There are millions of Lydias around the world waiting to hear the gospel, both in our communities and around the world. And it's our job to do that, to make sure they get to hear that message. And it's the missionary's job to do that in other lands. So that's why uh, missionaries we support, the Spitalities are doing that in very dark, uh, spiritually dark Turin, uh, Italy. That's why they're there. It's what the leeches are doing in, in an apostate country of England. It's what Pius Mozingu is doing in Uganda and, and so many others that we support. We support them in the work because it's the most important work in the world. And God has blessed us with more wealth than a lot of these places have. So the Spitalities, their, their little church in Turin, Italy, it's, it's just starting to take off. And they've been laboring there for years. And now it's starting to take off. They needed to be supported during all of that time. We're part of that work. Our giving keeps that work alive. So the gospel is heard and lives are changed and transformed by Christ. And our, so our purpose, our purpose for existence is to do that work or support that work or be involved in some way making that work happen. Look at verses 14 through 17. Nevertheless, you have done well with the, to share with me in my affliction. So Paul's the missionary. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent me a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. Notice verse 17, he talks about the profit which increases to their account there. He's using business language and um, he's saying that giving to God's work is an investment. It blesses the giver and scripture just abounds with that idea. But it's not like the TV preachers say, a way for you to make money. God has many ways of rewarding his investors. It's not always financial. In fact, it probably usually is not. But feeding their desires for lots of cash. You know, I'm going to support missions because God will give me lots of cash. That's not the main purpose or the main goal to do that. It, the, the blessing from God uh, is, comes in many, many different forms to us when we do his will and support his work. And you can tell the difference between Paul and those uh, people that promise fabulous wealth, uh, breakthrough wealth, you know, right away. If you send so much money to, it's always to them. You know, they never say, hey, would you give money to foreign missions? Just find your, get your local church and ask them what missionary. You can. It's never that. It's always them. Those are the guys that promise you lots of money as a reward. That's not at all what Paul's doing. Um, it's not a gimmick to fleece people to, to say this. Paul is telling us that God sees the heart behind the gift and he blesses it. He, he rewards people. You're making an investment and 
he appreciates it. So giving to missions is an investment in the kingdom of God. And the reason is how God looks at it. Verse 18 here. He says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. There it is. You see that last part there? A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. It smells really sweet to God when we take of our substance and support the gospel, get the gospel going forward. It's a fragrant aroma. That language, if you've read the Bible much, should sound pretty familiar. That's the language of sacrifice throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 and 21, Noah and his family come out of the ark and they immediately worship God. Verse 20, Genesis 8, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. That wonderful promise. But what's really interesting about verse 21 and someday I'm going to dig into it more. It says God smelled this soothing aroma and he said this to himself. So it wasn't like an announcement. It's just his own enjoyment of the worship that they were offering him. That's pretty cool. So that's quite a return on an investment. I will never again curse the ground on account of man. That, that's a pretty good investment for prioritizing God and, and worship from those people. And that same language follows sacrifices, uh, sacrifices offered with a good heart throughout the books of Moses. The, the law speaks of burnt offerings as soothing aromas to the Lord. Two times it does that in Exodus chapter 29. Three times in Leviticus chapter 1 uses that language. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 uses the same terms for the great sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice of all, the true sacrifice that actually saves us, that of the Lord Jesus. He says, Jesus, quote, gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So, you know, when they would offer sacrifices, smoke would rise up and or in, on the altar of incense, or from the altar where animals were slaughtered and burned. And, and as that came up, it pleased God. The odor pleased God. Now, it isn't the smell. It's not the idea. It's the heart that was worshiping truly and, and giving to God and doing all of that. So Paul's language here in Philippians is not, it's not accidental. He's invoking the language of a pleasing sacrifice. So a heart that is happy and willing to support gospel work is blessed by the Lord. It's an investment. And he delights in that. He, it pleases him. And he will reward it. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Everybody knows that verse. And how he might well do that is recorded in verse 19. Verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to the riches, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's limitless, glorious wealth. And it's out of that that he will take care of us. He is seriously looking out for us. Not barely looking out for us, but according to his riches in glory. He's not reluctant to do so. He's not reluctant in love nor shy of resources. Jesus said it best, seek first 
his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all the worldly things will be added to you. All the things you need. He will take care of us. He might not grant every wish that we have because not all of our wishes are the best for us. But he will supply all of our needs. And he can do this in Christ Jesus. Uh, All of our blessings flow out of what Jesus did for us ultimately. He made us right with God. We're forgiven because of him. We're even raised to the status of children of God. And with that, Paul can't help but just burst into praise as he thinks about it. So verse 20, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, we serve an awesome God. And the more you think about him and his provision for us, his love for us, using us, strengthening us, God is glorified in all of that. And he'll be glorified forever. So the rest of the book is just greetings in Christ in the bond all Christians have. There's one little phrase that says, tell me more, tell me more. And that's verse 21. It says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. It's actually verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Then he signs it. He probably signed it first. Caesar's household? What is that talking about? That's kind of amazing. He particularly sends greetings from Caesar's household. No names, but greetings. Now, household could be family members. It could just be uh, servants that are serving in his household. It could be officials that are tied to the emperor and are part of his retinue there. So we don't know how high or how close they were to him, but certainly closer than just about everybody else, right? I mean, these were people that the emperor at least saw and probably spoke to and were maybe close to. And Philippi was a Roman colony. When we were there, it was really interesting because Philippi is in Macedonia, which is, you know, just north of Greece. It's a Greek-speaking part of the world. But all the inscriptions we saw in Philippi were Latin because it was a planted Roman colony. They used to take uh, retired soldiers from the Roman army and give them land and uh, let them settle in a certain place. So they would plant these sort of city colonies, and Philippi was one of those. So there's a lot of Roman people there. So there might be people actually in the church that knew people in Caesar's household. And those people in Caesar's household, some of them became Christians. They're in the church in Rome and they know Paul and Paul's sending greetings to them. That's, that's pretty exciting. So the gospel was very close to the emperor. And, you know, I like to think and I pray that there are Christians today near some of the world leaders that we might find horrifying. I mean, it seems like every day you open the paper and the Chinese are doing something else brutal to the church over there, arresting people, pulling crosses off buildings, putting up pictures of the current president and Chairman Mao and saying you have to worship these and and taking their scriptures away from them. It's brutal and uh, that kind of persecution. But what if there's Christians in the premier's household? What What if there's people there with him, right? What if Xi Jinping, who fears Christianity so much and hates it, has Christians all around him? It's possible, it's possible. Perhaps near the government in Iran, maybe the government in Russia or India. Those, all those places could use Christians. Pray that that's true. Pray that God would continue to work in that way. We don't know. But what we do know, the gospel succeeded ultimately because people sacrificed to keep it going. And it made it all the way into Caesar's household. So be content. Trust God. 
and see that his work gets done. Let's pray. Lord, you have ordained our lives. The blessings and the trials are all from your good hand. So help us learn the secret, whatever it takes to be content, to serve you, to love you, to stand with you in the great redemptive work of Christ in our world. In his name we pray, amen. All right, thank you for listening this morning. Kind of read back through there at a later time this week maybe and see if you can pick up on some of these ideas and plant them in your heart. Next week we're going to be back in Matthew. We're kind of near the end of Matthew, but we're going to pick it up and finish her out. Okay, God bless.